Welcome to this Sons of Thunder episode of the Think Podcast with my brother Parker and me. You're going to notice right away that we had some audio issues. Not so much technical issues as human issues. Although I thought our mics were set up and um, connected, apparently I had the wrong setting on my program. And so what you're going to hear is Eli Ayala, our guest, sounding great, and Parker and me sounding like we're speaking into a tin can 100 yards away. But you know what? That's life. The content is still good. I hope you enjoy it and we'll fix it for next time. Thanks for listening. We good? We're good. Awesome. Well, welcome to the Sons of Thunder. Uh, I'm Parker Sedicates, the main and most handsome host. Getting drowned out by the light. Uh, by what standards? Yeah, pull those clothes, right? There we go. That's a little better. <clears throat> no, just kidding. I am the humble one. Uh, my brother is more handsome. He's more learned than I am. Well, that's, yeah, that is objectively, those are both objectively true statements. Good, good, good. So I'll try to lower out here. And, uh, look at this. Look at that. That's going to be right. They can't hear you. Yes, they can. Oh, they will unplug. How about you unplug this? Just, look, just, look at this. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. So uh, I'm excited about today because uh, we have a fellow pre-sufferer on, um, Eli uh, Elias, and uh, he's from Revealed Apologetics. And if you guys are into pre-sup at all, you've seen this dude, he's been interviewing everyone, all the big names. Um, he's done a great job. So we figured, uh, hey, you can't beat him getting all the, the big names. Why not interview the interviewer himself? Uh, no, but we're actually really interested in his story. Um, so can you bring him on here? All right, Eli, can you see us? I can. Awesome, man! Wow, this sounds really clear. Yes, it does. Can you can you see me? Can you see me okay? Yeah, yeah, you look good. All right, cool. Thanks. You look good. You're making us look bad, actually. <laughs> you can knock that off. Um, okay, you guys start up here. I'm going to try to fix this debacle. Oh, stop that! We're messing around. No, with it's, I'm messing around. I'm messing around. Here. I'm messing around. Don't worry about it. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Eli. This is uh, this is the Sons of Thunder here. So you know, naturally, we're going to have to have some of this back and forth. Um, is it cool if we call you Eli or should it be Elias? Uh, it's Eli and the last name is Ayala, but everyone, oh. everyone messes it up. So no. <laughs> Okay, Eli. Oh, so Eli, uh, and you're, you're Puerto Rican, is that right? <laughs> I am. Whoa, 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 yeah, yeah, whoa, yeah, no, whoa. Yeah. We are woke. We do not think about people in those wow. territories okay. unless it's to assess their relative levels of oppression. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, we are woke. Eli, have you, have you been to Puerto Rico? Did you grow up? Anything like family back there? Anything? Uh, no, no. My my dad was born in Ponce. My mom was born in uh, Manhattan, mm. and I never went to Puerto Rico. I almost went to Puerto Rico back in two thousand one, but then nine eleven happened, and my dad uh, says you're not going on a plane, and I just never got around to going after that. So okay, awesome. Well, uh, Ponce. I, I lived in Puerto Rico for a year. That's why I ask. Uh, in in my west, and we'd always drive through through Ponce. Okay. Yeah, I love it there, man. It's an awesome place. So well, um, hopefully one day I'll get to go. Yeah, definitely, man. We'll have to we'll have to do a uh, apologetics conference down there for you. That would be awesome. Be great. Yeah, no, I'm not fluent. I'm not fluent in Spanish. I no, I'm neither am I. My Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately, all the uh, the people I was with campus ministry, and mm -hmm. all of them speak English you know, really well. Yeah. So yeah. I actually go up and I try to speak to them. I try to practice. You know, well, I'm mean, Parker. They be like, yeah, what's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> it was like. Better English than I speak. Okay. Yeah. So, so Eli, we want to have you on here, man. We want to have, um, we want to find out who you are. You know a little bit more about yourself. You're, um, you do some videos yourself as well, but 
a lot of a lot of the ones that have gotten a lot of views are you interviewing some some kind of top names in presup. Sure. So we want to hear you know the the who behind the interviewer. Yeah, well, my name is Elias Ayala. My friends call me Eli, and uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I actually grew up in a Spanish Pentecostal church, hmm. and I, I always joke around that uh, in the traditional Spanish Pentecostal churches, the services are like super long. Uh, that Jesus would leave before the service was over, um, and so we would have maybe like two hours, three hour services if it, if you know the spirit was there, you know how, how that goes. And um, it was completely in Spanish, and I never caught on to Spanish, and so I just spent for my early years because I grew up there as a, as a baby all the way up until adulthood. I spent my my time there uh, reading my Bible. So we had services Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sundays, and then there was a, a service. Uh, on Sunday morning, and then we would go back on Sunday evening. And so I was always reading my Bible. Um, when we had family gatherings, we were always talking about theology and issues of the Bible and things like that, spiritual things. And uh, so this has always been uh, something that is that was interesting to me uh, from very early on. And I was always a person who asked questions. So, uh, uh, you know, that's where my interest in theology and the Bible came from. Uh, not so much apologetics growing up. Um, the apologetics came a little bit later, but that's kind of my background as to why I developed an interest in the Bible and theology. Yeah. So in, in that uh, Pentecostal uh, background, you, you said you like questions, asking questions. Did you get a lot of good answers there? Did you feel like you, you didn't and you had to find them on your own? Or um, I had to find them on my own. That's not to say that because I went to a Pentecostal, I know, I know the caricature is that Pentecostals are anti-intellectualistic right. and that's sometimes true. Um, you know, if we if we're going to paint a broad brush, but I did come into to contact with some knowledgeable pastors who couldn't kind of knew uh, the theological and philosophical questions that I was asking. But overall, um, I really didn't get a lot of good answers. I had to search for them myself, and then very early on, I discovered um, Carm.org. Oh yeah. Which, uh, yeah, people don't know about that website. It's it's a great website to get quick answers to questions. Um, that's uh, over there at Matt Slick's um, ministry. And um, I developed kind of a passing interest in apologetics by going onto that site and listening to, you know, apologetics, uh, you know, podcasts and things like that. Oh, that's awesome. Wow, Matt Slick. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, Matt Slick is is kind of the, uh, the long longstanding godfather of uh, Internet. That's right. Apologetics. Yeah, that's right. I, I refer people to him and his website all the time. Uh, actually, um, still not James White. Here, you're saying that. Well, <laughs> that's right. James, James White is like the uh, the Sauruman, no, the Sa Sauron. <laughs> uh, right, I'm not his, sure uh, where you're going with that. No, one, no, right? he's a fan of Lord of the Rings. He understands what I'm saying. I, I, I actually, those are one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just watching. You call uh, one of the heroes uh, Sauron. No, no, a good Sauron. A good Sauron. You know, he sees all, always, you know, willing to. Uh, someone makes someone somewhere makes an appeal to Molinism, and and yeah. uh, James, you know, Doctor White sees that. And yeah, that's. I okay. see you. Yeah. you know, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know what I'm talking about, uh, or Eli knows what I'm talking about. Uh, so, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, uh, Eli, I was just listening to. Uh, one of your debates um, with with an atheist, uh, a, a gentleman, and his name is escaping me, but um, you were you were defending the presuppositional methodology and uh, and tag. Mm -hmm. um, Parker and I are both presuppositionalists, and 
you know, very much favor the use of tag and, and the whole system. That, and one of the things I love about your argumentation is you describe the, um, the, the debate, the discussion in terms of system versus system, as opposed to matching up various different components where it might sound like we use similar language to the skeptic, atheist, or unbeliever. Um, could you just talk a little bit about uh, your apologetical methodology, who you influenced by, and sort of, um, you know, how would you describe for someone who's not familiar with your work or even presuppositionalism, how do you approach conversations with atheists and, and skeptics and unbelievers? Yeah, well, as you said before, I'm a presuppositional apologist, um, and that's usually drawn a distinction to uh, the more classical approach. And so I would describe the presuppositional method as a top-down approach as opposed to a bottom-up approach. A bottom-up approach to apologetics would seek to work their way up to the conclusion of God's existence. And so you would utilize uh, more of the traditional proofs that are that are familiar with those who engage in natural theology and things like that. Um, the classical apologetical approach is a two-step approach in which you seek to demonstrate the existence of God through the use of traditional proofs, uh, like the arguments like the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, the teleological argument, the moral argument. And once you establish the existence of a kind of theistic God, then you narrow in and focus on the, um, on the historical evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. And so you try to build up uh, an argument, build up a case to the conclusion that Christianity is, is true based on, on those arguments and other things that, that they would bring into the discussion. A presuppositional approach is a more top-down approach um, as opposed to um, arguing in a fashion that gets us to the conclusion that God exists. Rather, we start with the truth of the Christian worldview as a system, as you mentioned before. And we argue in light of that, that if you do not assume the truth of the Christian system, you cannot engage in uh, in proof, or or rather, you cannot justify proof, intelligibility, logic, or anything at all. So it's kind of really based on that biblical principle that in His light we see light. If you don't start with God's uh, light, then you're going to be stuck in darkness. So don't assume the Christian worldview. And my job as the Christian apologist in honoring my Lord in how I engage in in Christian defense is to show the folly of a position that does not stand on the firm rock of God's uh, revelation. Amen. Amen. Uh, Eli, so so there's a uh, various camps of, of presuppositionalism, right? There's, you know, Gordon Clark, and we would say that's that's a completely different type of presuppositionalism. Sure. I, lo I love Clark. Yeah, yeah. Notice, notice Parker's about Clark's over here. Clark. I, I, I like Clark. I, I see you actually in the uh, the Facebook group with that. So I, I actually, I don't just like Clark. I, I love Clark. I, I disagree with... Um, the key differences between the Vantillian apologetic and the Clarkian apologetic, obviously I lean towards a uh, Vantillian, but mm -hmm. I, I mean, reading Gordon Clark is so refreshing mm -hmm. because he was so much more clearer in his yeah, writing than Vantill was. Right. And so there's so much to glean from Clark, especially his devastating critiques of unbelieving worldview. So if you don't agree with like his view of like axioms, right. Sure. And mm -hmm. his view of the knowledge of God being um, analogous versus uh you know, univocal language, blah, 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 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. Um, if you don't like that, I mean, surely one could benefit from his internal critiques of, of unbelieving uh, worldviews. He was yeah. such a, a very powerful thinker in that regard. Yeah, especially empiricism, right? He had a special hatred for, uh, for empiricism there. And when you, say, when you say internal critique, um, some of our listeners are brand new to apologetics and okay. much, much more to presuppositionalism. And internal critique is what? Yeah, an internal critique is when you hypothetically grant the truth of a person's position, 
and then you critique it given its own standards. So like, let's assume, uh, for example, Buddhism is true. Let's grant the principles of Buddhism and show internally that given its truth, it falls apart. And yeah. so you can do that with any religious system. Buddhism is a fun one because Buddhism uh, teaches that, you know, there's suffering in the world. And the reason why there's suffering is there's desire. And so when people desire things and they don't get what they desire, then you have suffering. You have murder, you have uh, pillaging and all these different evils that we observe in the world. They really just have their root in desire and one's inability to fulfill that desire. And so what do you need to do to reach uh, kind of a, a state of nirvana, right? A state of, of peace and tranquility on Buddhism. You need to remove desire. So you remove desire, then in essence, you remove suffering. And so let's grant the hypothetical truth of that. And then there's an internal problem. You're going to engage in an internal critique mm -hmm. that if you want to remove desire, the desire to remove a desire is a desire in itself. And so the very thing that you need to desire to remove, you actually shoot yourself in the foot. Because what happens when you desire to remove desire, but you're unable to remove desire? Then more right. suffering results. You see, so uh, the very attempt to follow the path of Buddhism and, and accomplish what it seeks to accomplish, uh, you actually have to contradict its, its uh, undergirding principle. Now, Eli, as I was listening to your debate, and I, I realized who it was with, I looked it up, it was with Eric Murphy. Yes. You were on his program. Do you remember that debate? Yes. All right, so... One of the things that um, I thought you articulated really, really well, and, and believe me, man, we want to get your, your backstory. We really want to talk about your show, but um, this has been this has been bugging, not bugging me, but it's it's been on my mind since I was listening. Okay. Um, so when you're comparing system versus system, which I think is the same way that Parker and I, I mean, I think we're fully on board with that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Sure. So, um, um, by requiring the unbelieving worldview to make sense internally, by doing this internal critique and looking for internal consistency, uh, what would you say to the objector who says, well, the idea that I need an internal consistency, the idea that I need internally coherent um, arguments is itself an external standard that you're trying to impose upon my worldview. You hear something similar to that when you hear things like, uh, you know, logic is a tool of white supremacy or something like that. I don't know if you're into the whole uh, wokeness and we, we don't really get into all that. We just kind of sort of mock it from afar. But um, the, you know, what, what would you say to somebody who says, well, you might think that you need to be internally consistent. I don't need to be internally consistent. I just need to go with what works. Right. Well, uh, when you're evaluating what works, you still need to employ universal principles of logic. Even Eric admitted that logic is something we need to follow. Mm. But then we inconsistently assume that logic is just, um, you know, it's not prescriptive. It's uh, it's it's descriptive. So if you're if you're going to say something to the extent that, well, that's an external critique, not an internal critique. So are you saying then that to grant your own worldview, you're saying I don't require consistency? Is, so let's grant that. If you don't require consistency within your own worldview, then you've demonstrated my point that given the truth of your worldview, you can't ground knowledge because knowledge presupposes consistency and logic. So yeah. given, that per, given that perspective, you can't have logic. You can't have knowledge. And you can't even have what works because what works presupposes some degree of consistency because it has worked for you in the past and we're hoping that it's going to work for you in the future. Yeah. And so you, uh, if he wants to say that, that I actually that's what I want him to say. Because that's precisely what I want to demonstrate, that given that perspective, uh, you can't have a grounding for anything whatsoever. Yeah. 
that's so Bonson used to say, you know, speaking to the mic. Right? Yeah. Like, come, come on, tell us. Yeah, we, we want to hear. Let's get that on record that you said that. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, so that, that brings me to to a point I wanted to to make earlier or to ask you about. So there's all these different schools of presuppositionalism, and even within Vantilian schools of presuppositionalism, there's there's some split. Um, do you find yourself um, in one different camp, or uh, you know the the Framian camp, triperspectival method, Bonson, uh, maybe the more you know uh, academic like Anderson or Bolt or something? Do you do you fit anywhere ne neatly? Uh, just real quick to throw it out there, I do have an episode where I interviewed Chris Bolt. And yeah, I love that. I actually listened to that one twice. Yeah, he, that's how I first heard about you as Parker. Okay. Yeah, yeah that, that was that was a great, uh, great, great conversation. Um, I would identify more closely with Bonson, but I am very—I am not into this, you know, rah-rah for my team. And there are those presuppositionalists over there. I, I see the value in all of their different emphases. Um, for example, I believe that um, there's nothing wrong with using a cosmological argument if done within a presuppositional framework. Yeah. Um, you have some presuppositionalists who say, nope, anytime we appeal to some other argument other than the transcendental argument, you're, you're making man uh, judge over God. And I think that's, I think that's ridiculous. Hmm. Um, if, if everything is evidence for God, as the presuppositionalist says, then any, any um, specific thing within reality can be used to demonstrate God's existence. Right. Right. And so I don't mind starting anywhere. And Bonson promoted that too. You want to talk about beauty? Let's yeah. talk about beauty. Let's let's talk about what worldview can make sense out of beauty. What worldview makes sense out of science? What worldview makes sense out of uh, a coherent view of history? So I like to use all of the the tools within the toolbox of the presuppositionalist because, as Dr. Scott Oliphant said, um, he said that presuppositionalists are eminently evidentialists because we literally think every everything is evidence for God. And right. so I think we should um, use all those things at our disposal and not limit ourselves to only one emphasis, namely uh, the specific transcendental argument as it is popularly presented in kind of um, the popular parlance of, you know, the proof of the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. I believe that. Yeah. Let's move a little more and actually go into some specifics right. and talk about science and talk about philosophy and things like that. So I think there's something to be learned from all uh, camps. Um, and I don't quibble over whether, you know, uh, the traditional proofs can be formulated in a transcendental, so that's, you know, yeah. but I just, um, when I met John frame, I met John frame when I went on vacation to Orlando, uh, RTS was, was in the area and this was over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to Dr. Frame and I, I sat in his office and, uh, we talked about Bonson, which, <laughs> which, I, which I hope that wasn't offensive because I, I wanted to meet him, but then I ended up talking about Bonson. And, um, but when all is said, is said and done is that uh, when we were talking about the legacy of Greg Bonson and what Bonson really wanted to do, and I resonate very much with this, is that when you put all of the debates aside, all of those, you know, kind of those, uh, I'm on this person's team, I'm, I'm on that person's team, Bonson's vision was to really just take this methodology to the streets. Stop talking about the the theory all the time. It's important, but don't get so caught up in those those behind the scene arguments that you never actually do apologetics. Yeah. And so um, he said that to me. Uh, Doctor Frame said, like, we need to just go to uh, take this stuff to the streets. And so while I identify more with a Bonson, more with a Van Til, um, I don't quibble over those, uh, you know, the my team uh, versus your team sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's super refreshing, actually. You know, because you can totally get in these camps, and then you're debating 
other people who say they're presuppositionalists <laughs> all day yeah. long so yeah. believers yeah. and unifying. And I, I found that on your program that uh, really appreciated. You'll have uh, Molinists, you'll have you know traditional guys who, hey, this guy's really good at this argument. You yes. know, learn from him here. This is this is good. Right, we're right there. That's that's so key because um, the people say if you're a reformed and you're presuppositionalist, like why do you have like classical apologists on your show? Sure. Listen, one of the things that I think is deficient within the presuppositional tradition is the focus on specific evidences. We 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 cover these things with broad brush strokes, right? We've got the worldview stuff down packed, yeah. but then when it's required to actually explain the ins and outs of how we can make sense out of this, given you know what people say about that with regards to the evidence, it, it's not enough to just say, well, your worldview can't ground evidence. That's true, but we need to be able to actually um, uh, go through the specific ins and outs of given our own perspective, here is the evidence. Right, and yeah. um, you don't see a lot of presuppositionalists uh, you know, engaging in the specifics with regards to the historical evidence for Jesus or, you know, the God is the first cause and getting into some of the science behind that. You have some people who do, but I think it's avoided, at least in the popular level. Uh, people are just um, satisfied with saying by what standard, by what standard. Uh, okay. They don't really give um, much to the unbeliever to chew on with regards to specifics. Yeah. Uh, who would you say is a, a fellow presuppositionalist who handles evidence and evidential arguments really well? Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I really do think that this is, I mean, this might be due to my ignorance, but I, I at least on a popular level, I don't see any presuppositionalist, uh, at least ones that I've been exposed to that, that go into specifics of the evidence. It's more broad brush strokes and, and worldview kind of without my worldview can't make sense out of evidence without getting into the details. Now, now that being said, I don't think that, that doesn't mean that there are no presuppositionalists who can't do it. I'm just basing that off of my limited exposure to yeah. presuppositionalists who I, I don't think do it well. Yeah. You, you wouldn't put James White in that category? Uh, yes, thank you. I, I, that, um, yeah, I would say James White is in the category of using arguments well within a presuppositional framework. That, that does, yes, I would agree with that. I think he does that well. But who else? Who James White will, will be presuppositional as an approach, and then he'll go in the ins and outs of textual criticism. You know, he'll, he'll quote scholarship and things like that, but who else does that? I, I, don't, yeah. I don't see a lot of people doing One, Vern Poitras, I mean, he's not a public, he's not doing debates or anything oh, like yeah. that, but, you know, his redeeming series goes into mathematics and he goes into right. all the details that we should be talking about because we say, yeah, you, there, you can uh, show by toothpaste, you know, the toothpaste. Sure. And then he can actually go in with some science and, and back that yeah. up. But, but you see, but you see right there, uh, Poitras is not like you said. He's not a public figure that's visible online and things like that. He's respected within the scholarly realm. Now, now, um, Doctor Bonson, uh, he would use the toothpaste proof for God's existence, and he right. would do uh, issues of induction and, and things like that. But, but there, you know, who's the next Bonson? I think Bonson uh, held a wonderful balance between. Uh, scholarly sophistication and a kind of down-to-earth, you know, able to communicate this to the masses. Yeah. Now, what do we have? We have super smart presuppositionalists who are writing books that nobody's reading except, yeah. you know, other apologetic nerds. Well, but, yeah. Who's the face of the people on the street? You don't, right. you know, you have people like Cy Tenbruggenkate and maybe a couple others, but that's, you know, that's it. That's why I'm trying to promote presuppositional apologetics um, by interviewing these people and seeing how different ways it can be applied. Um, with the hopes that the more intellectual and sophisticated side of presuppositionalism catches on with the average person. Yeah, and I, I think you do a great job of that. If I could just uh, just compliment you here. Thanks. Uh, um, yeah, you do a great job of being conversational. 
which is mm -hmm. it's really hard. And that's what what Bonson was really great at. That's why he's this, this legend because he was funny. Yes. He made jokes and he make he make the whole crowd laugh. He make his opponent laugh. Yeah. But he's also being firm. He's not he's not being squishy anywhere. Uh, and I think you're doing a great job of being relatable, personal. I watched your uh, I watched a bit of your debate with Tom Jump. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that guy, you know, he's going so quick, and he's he's got it all memorized and stuff. And you're, hey man, can you can you slow down a little bit? You know, just just for me, can you slow down? And it was yeah. nice because it wasn't as arrogant, prideful. You you didn't go into that with him. Hey, I need you to slow down a little bit. And then it yeah. actually, so yeah, I've been I've been uh, really appreciating that in in your work. Yeah. Cool. So you've got a program, video video show. Mm -hmm. And you've got a ministry. Are they both called Re Revealed Apologetics? Uh, Revealed Apologetics, yeah. That's basically what I do. Revealed Apologetics, excuse me, is the YouTube channel. I also have a podcast on iTunes. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently uh, working on a website, which I'll try to get some other presuppositional apologists who are perhaps not good public speakers, but are really good writers to address mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the ins and outs and the specifics that we don't necessarily cover in detail in the videos. Um, so I'm working on on that, but um, yeah, I mean, if I can put a, a shameless plug, I, I really am hoping to. Uh, you're saying that you enjoyed the show, and I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. Uh, but but I, I'm curious as to why I only have 400 and something subscribers. It seems like a, a lot more people like it, but not not as many are subscribing. So I, I do encourage people to subscribe. I definitely um, want people to know more about what I'm doing because I want this stuff to pick up. And so that people could have access to um, what I think is an underrepresented uh, apologetic methodology. All the greats, you know, they're either retired, um, they're just writing academically, or someone like Bonson's dead. So, mm -hmm. so I don't want this to um, uh, to die down. I know there's a lot going on with the classical apologists, which I think they're doing great work. Sure. Um, but for some reason, within the Reformed community, I don't think we're tapping the nerve of that popular level as a lot of these other ministries are, like cross-examined with with Frank Turek. Uh, you have Trinity Radio with Braxton Hunter and some of these other, uh, you know, capturing Christianity. Yeah. Um, all of these um, apologetic uh, YouTube channels and ministries, I think, are doing excellent in tapping into that popular level audience, and they're communicating these things in ways that's super helpful. And by the way, I follow all of those non-presuppositional ministries, and I benefit greatly from them. But what I find is, from the presuppositional perspective, there's not a lot of representation. Um, at that broad audience spectrum and hitting that popular nerve um, in a way that's different than, say, someone like how Cy, Cy Ten Bruggenkate did it back in the day. I think his style of presup is kind of uh, dying down a little bit. Um, and I think people are wanting a little bit more in terms of, okay, let's see how we could present this stuff in a different way and get a little deeper into uh, the issues. And that's nothing against Cy. Cy's a friend of mine. We talk every now and then. Um, but... Uh, he was kind of the guy who popularized it for the average Joe. But again, just like Bonson, there's no one else doing it like he did, making that splash that he did when he initially started doing these things. You know, it's funny. I made it like 75% of the way through my MA in philosophy of religion mm -hmm. with an emphasis, you know, I was studying apologetics before I ever heard about presuppositionalism. And I actually heard about it from the Reformed podcast. Uh, which is a, a podcast that it's no longer out right now, but it was these two guys who they would talk about beer and theology, and they were sort of new. That sounds, sort of reformed. <laughs> that sounds so reformed. They talk about beer and the theology. Yeah, that's right, yeah. totally. And they were sort of like on the, the tail end of the whole young, restless reform movement when everybody became Calvinist. And then it was like, okay, well, what do we do now that we're all Calvinists? And um, so these guys had this great podcast. 
I really enjoyed it. And I heard about Precept through them. And I'm like, well, I'm studying Precept. I'm studying apologetics. I've never heard of this before. What is this? Because at Trinity, there was really nobody really uh, knew much about it, or at least uh, was really even has respect for it. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, because even uh, Van, uh, Kevin Van Hoosier wasn't there at that time. He came later. Um, uh, anyway, all that to say, you know, I found out about Psy through just doing a, bu a bunch of research. Actually, um, Parker and I kind of went down that road together. Yeah. Parker just dove in head first, and before long, Parker was teaching me and, and referring me to different guys. What about what about you, Eli? How did you get into presup? Do you have a background in other like? Did you start out as a classicalist, an evidentialist? I know you've got some Molinism in your background. Hey, no one's perfect. Uh, you know, how did you arrive where you're at today in terms of apologetics? Well, my, my friend, uh, uh, Guillaume Bignon, who's a Calvinist philosopher, he says that Molinism is his favorite of the false views. <laughs> so I, I, would, I would agree with Bignon on that point. Uh, it is my favorite of the false views. Um, but anyway... Um, yeah, when I first got into apologetics, I was predominantly a classical apologist. I listened to a lot of William Lane Craig, and I, I still uh, listen to William Lane Craig. I think he's a, a brilliant mind. But it wasn't until I listened to, and this is most people's entry point into presuppositional apologetics, it wasn't until I listened to a debate by Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein. And um, I'm, I, people who have... Um, who've gotten into presuppositional apologetics through this same uh, route via the, these debates that Bonson did, I think all of them would say the same thing, that when you are engaged in something like classical apologetics for so long, and you hear someone like Bonson debate the way that he did, uh, the reaction is the same. I've never seen someone debate this way before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's different, and it, it, it's so biblical and non-compromising that Jesus is at the forefront of everything. That's that whole system. We're arguing the system of Christian truth, not arguing 10 hours over, you know, uh, as Cy Ten Bruggenkate always says, the complexity of the human eye. Uh, the facts about the human eye are connected to Jesus Christ as creator. The facts of science are connected to Jesus Christ as creator. So um, when you see someone like Greg Bonson debate in the way that he does, it is refreshing to be able to debate in such a fashion that you feel like you're also being faithful to Scripture when you're doing it. Now, I'm not saying that classical apologists think that they're not being faithful to Scripture, um, but I think that even in my own personal study, when I study um, classical apologetic works as opposed to presuppositional apologetic works, is what I find when I personally study classical works is that um, it's not very spiritually edifying because it's all these philosophical arguments and defending these premises, which which are important for sure. Um, but when I study presuppositional apologetics, especially the works of Bonson, Scripture is the blood life of the argumentation, and it's always bringing you back to what does the Bible say about the natural man? What does the Bible say about the tools that God has given us to uh, to bring down those um, unbelieving strongholds. So scripture seeps through all of uh, a biblical presuppositional outlook, whereas the classical approach, um, I, I don't find that emphasized as much. And, and even in some cases, people say, well, let's set aside the Bible. Let's not talk about the Bible. Let's talk about this, that, or the other thing. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of know what you're saying, but I can't imagine that if the Apostle Paul was alive right now and we went witnessing with him and engaging in apologetics, that he would argue um, in those categories. Now, again, 
that gets into the debates of over methodology, and I understand that. But I'm just sharing this from my own personal perspective. I find presuppositionalism tends to be, be, be very focused on uh, a scriptural understanding of everything we talk about. That's why Scott Oliphant, I mentioned it before, um, he defined apologetics like this, and I love it. He says that um, uh, apologetics is the application of theology to unbelief. Yeah. Yes. And, and so presuppositional apologetics is more than just an apologetic methodology. It's a way of thinking. Yeah. It's a way of looking at the world, everything that we do, argumentation included, thinking included. It, it is to look at those things through the lens of Scripture. And to that, I think, uh, is it's one of its main strengths. And it shows the powerful philosophical strength of the biblical worldview. And um, I, I think a lot of Christians um, sometimes are ashamed to bring the Bible into it, or they bring it all the way at the end of the discussion, and they're kind of like, you know, wishy-washy, you know, I don't want to talk about inerrancy, I don't want to get into these things. It's kind of just making the target super, super, uh, you know, um, uh, small. We'll, we'll say, well, we can grant you all this, and that's not a necessary part. And it's like you argue in these piecemeal fashion. But the presuppositional approach says, nope. We argue the whole kit and caboodle. It's the entire system of Christian truth. And if you don't assume this, if you don't look at the world in this way, then your argumentation is reduced to foolishness. And that actually strengthens each individual argument you might bring because it's buttressed now by all the other elements all working together. It's a phalanx. It's a Roman oh, yeah. instead of a simple guy marching out in the battle. Sure. And this whole idea of arguing system versus system is, is, is just a revolutionary way of thinking. Uh, it helped me avoid um, certain arguments that were posed against me. For example, someone would put uh, the evil God objection. You know, how do you know God's not deceiving you? And so, you know, um, I'm arguing the Christian worldview as a system. And so you have this epistemological objection that, you know, for all you know, God could be deceiving you. How would you know? And so basically, when you argue in terms of the entire system, I'm saying, well, wait a minute. Given my system, what you're saying is you're asking me, is it possible that the Christian God, who's the ground of truth, if, is, it, it's, is it possible that he's deceiving me? Well, the idea that it's possible for him to deceive me is not part of the Christian worldview. And so you're actually engaging in an internal critique by even suggesting the possibility. Mm -hmm. And so given the truth of my worldview, I don't even have to entertain that because you're basically asking me, what if the Christian God isn't the Christian God? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And so that's so helpful instead of running down the rabbit trail of arguing over theories of truth and theories of deception and how to... It's just so helpful to be like, nope, it's the entire body of Christian truth and any alien component that you try to throw in there to try to, you know, um, critique me doesn't work because mm -hmm. we're arguing system. We're not arguing pieces. You can't take uh, in my debate with Tom Jump. He said that perhaps perhaps I can believe the resurrection, but that doesn't show that God has the omni attributes that, right. he, that he's all powerful. I'm like, no, you can't grant the um, the resurrection independent of the omni attributes. Because the omni, uh, the resurrection happens within a context in which an omnipotent God exists. You can't break that apart and argue it piece by piece. So arguing the presuppositional way, system versus system, is not only it not only helps us to argue in a consistent fashion, but it also helps us avoid um, external critiques of worldviews. Recognizing that, hey, that objection, interesting, but that's not part of the Christian system. I'm arguing the Christian system. Yeah. You know, possibility. If someone asked me, is it possible for God not to exist? Well, if I were to grant that it's possible that he does not exist, I would be arguing on an alien presupposition. Mm -hmm. Because according to Scripture, my God is the Lord over possibility. There is no possibility that stands over God. God is the one in the Christian worldview that defines what's possible and impossible. Mm 
So how could I grant the possibility that there is possibility and contingency over God such that it's possible that he doesn't exist? Right. So we do not argue allowing external critiques to lord it over our system. You take our system or you leave our system. If you're going to use these hypothetical examples and these thought experiments that have no bearing on the Christian perspective, you're just throwing rocks from your side of the wall. You're not really engaging in with it, within an internal critique of the Christian worldview. Yeah, well, and some, that's something I think is so important. You're you're standing your ground. You're saying this is what I believe, and this is this is biblical Christianity. This is where I'm standing, and it takes away a lot of arrogance for us. You know, I didn't make this up. I didn't piece my system together, and it's also it, it takes away any kind of like ad hoc. I made this up in order to have a consistent worldview. No, I received this this consistent worldview uh, from revelation of God. You know, and, and so why does it work so well? It's it's God's revelation. You know, and so I didn't make up this worldview in order to debate with you. Mm -hmm. I have this worldview, and all I do in in debate is just weaponize it. <laughs> I'm saying I'm, I'm gonna stand right here. No, that's not the God I believe in. No, that's not the God I believe in. The God I believe in can make sense of the human experience that we're mm -hmm. having right now. How do you make sense of it? Right. Like, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to ask you to do the same. Can, can you explain to me why you squeeze the, the toothpaste and expect it to come out and not, you know, pudding or something or it to float away, right? Um, we can make sense of, like, the law of in, induction, not, not ad hoc. I didn't make up a God in order to justify it. Sure. It just naturally flows out organically out of Scripture that he is holding all things together. He's appointed times and seasons and... It also includes being able to squeeze toothpaste and brush my yeah. teeth tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, Eli, you, in your debate with Eric, you asked him, are the, are the laws of logic, um, how did you say, uh, conceptual, not entities, but uh, basically you, you asked him if they were, um, if they existed purely in, within the mind of, of each individual human or, you know, if they were absolute laws. And... One of the things I really loved about what you did was he said, well, I would, I would need to see some justification for why and how they could be you know, universal sort of immaterial laws. And I'm, I'm butchering what, exactly what he said. But he said, no, no, no. I'm asking you. I'm not justifying my position to you right now. I'm actually asking you, what do you actually believe about logic? Right. And you could... Now, I, I listened to it on your podcast. I didn't watch it, but you could hear the gears turning. Huh. I I don't know. I've never applied my atheistic principles to the concept of the laws of logic to figure out how something immaterial could exist in my mind and your mind and it, for it to be the same and universally binding. Right. He never considered that before. And so I loved how you pushed him and said, no, no, no. What do you believe about that? Mm -hmm. And that, I think that goes back to the whole system versus system. Tell me mm -hmm. how your system explains that because i can tell you my system but you've got to explain your systems right your system has to make coherent the individual things that you believe so if you believe in logic logic doesn't exist in a vacuum you understand logic within the context of your metaphysic and if your metaphysic is purely materialistic like eric's was then i'm honestly asking i'm not trying to get you in a gotcha moment like how do you make sense out of the laws of logic within a world that is purely physical you know, are they brain functions? You know, what, what do you do when people have different brains? You know, then we do, does that mean we have different logic? I mean, it seemed like he was all over uh, the map on that one. I don't think he's ever made uh, the connection with why that's important. Yeah, so that, that brings up another point um, about, sorry to, to 
keep going back to a method here, but so um, uh, so you have you have Bonson who did formal debates, um, and you know if he's doing that many formal debates, obviously he's doing it in his personal life, conversational as well. Uh, and then you had Oliphant who uh, seems to uh, prize the conversation a little bit more highly, um, and, and you, you even asked him a couple times, you know, can you give me like a formal statement here? And and that's really not his thing. He likes the the conversational model. Sure. Better. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, does does Prius up work better in conversation when you can find out someone's worldview? Does it work equally as well in a in a formal debate setting? Yeah. When you say work well, it really is going to depend on the person's ability to bring across with clarity the the position, right? Um, there is there is a positive and a negative to regular conversation, and there is a positive and a negative to formal debate. So it really depends what you're what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, when you're having formal discussions, informal discussions, there's no moderator. So depending on who you're talking to, the conversation go really smoothly or it can be a dumpster fire, as you can as you can see, you know, on many discussions uh, online. Uh, so um, I, I think, in my personal opinion, I think presuppositionalism uh, shines in a conversational context because you can stop a person and not let them get away with making a statement say, oh, wait a minute. Okay, you just said this, right? Yes. So let's let's stay there for a little bit. Can you show me, given your understanding of the world, how you justify that or how does that fit in your worldview? So I, I like the ability to stop someone and actually ask the question on the spot as opposed to listening to a 10, 15-minute opening statement and then you're kind of racing to write down the relevant uh, points. Yeah. I think... Uh, the reason why I like that is because it's kind of a real-life situation. I mean, debates are important, and that's why I engage in them, and I, I want to get better, and I want to do more. Um, but the average person uh, is going to learn from your content more, I think, when they see what does this look like when you're just talking to someone. Because not everyone is going to be like, well, wait a second, buddy, you know, Johnny, wait until I'm done with my opening statement. That, that's not uh, you know, that's not going to happen. Or when you're listening to a lecture and you're talking, you know, you're 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 listening to the the professor talk about epistemological self-consciousness. Uh, the average person has no idea what you're talking about. So, what does this method look like within the context of a conversation? That is not only more entertaining than a formalized debate to see people kind of interact on the spot, but it's super instructive for for the average person who wants to take this and actually use it in the real world. Yeah. Now, with regards to um, formalized debates, I do think that they're very important as well. Dr. William Lane Craig, who is obviously an experienced debater, is at over 100, uh, 100 and some odd debates um, under his belt. He said that um, debates are something like power encounters, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when you debate someone, it's not necessarily to convert the person you're debating, right. but you have this encounter of ideas that is now going to have a huge impact upon the people who are watching. And so uh, uh, debates that are viewed by a large audience can um, help promote the intellectual vigor of a position, that it's able to stand scrutiny between two um, intellectuals and in the public square, and it gives you um, an inspiration to study and research a little bit more. I don't know about you, but when I listen to a debate, heck, I want to go in my room, lock my door, and read books all night long because it makes me think, you know? So there's a plus and a minus to both uh, to both methods, and it's going to depend who, uh, what kind of person you are. You're more conversational. Maybe that's the better route. Yeah. You know, um, Eli. One of the one of the pieces that of your own story uh, that I you mentioned in your bio is that you had a skeptical professor who challenged your own faith 
Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a springboard for launching you into apologetics. Is that right? Could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I took a class um, called Literature of the Bible. And so we were supposed to talk about the Bible as as literature. And so we were going to explore, you know, the different influences and genres and things like that. And the professor would spend like 20 minutes before each class just ridiculing the Bible and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I remember one time he said, the Bible nowhere says that Jesus is God. And I'm like, well, I wasn't doing apologetics, but heck, I was raised in the church and I've read, I read the Bible a lot. So I was like, well, wait a second. Wait a minute. What about the Gospel of John? He goes, no, no, no. You can't use the Gospel of John because it was the latest of all the Gospels. And so, uh, you know, the idea that Jesus is God was kind of a later development. Um, And it was only when I got into apologetics that I learned about P52, (laughs) you know, which is uh, a portion of the Gospel of John that was dated to within 125 uh, AD, which is like shortly after the first century, which although it is the late, it's the latter Gospel written, uh, we have um, evidence that it was most definitely written in the first century. Um, but I didn't know sort of, I didn't know things like that back in the day. And so he brought up uh, contradiction, uh, apparent contradictions and things like that and made me kind of uh, look at the Bible in a way that I never really looked at it, given that I was raised in church. And so I did a little experiment. I pretended to be uh, an atheist for a short while. I wasn't, but I pretended to be. And I researched uh, arguments against Christianity and things like that. And then after that, I was like, okay, Christianity is over 2,000 years old, and surely, you know, someone has responded to these sorts of things. And through uh, my research, I came in in touch with, um, you know, various apologetics websites and things like that. It really wasn't until my brother-in-law used my iPod for something, and he um, put his his music in my iPod. And then when I began to listen to the iPod, he gave my iPod back, and I started listening to the stuff. I'm like, who's this guy, Greg Bonson? And that was the first time I actually listened to a Greg Bonson debate. Wow. Uh, so, so that definitely, uh, you know, kind of was one of the gateways, the gateway drugs, so to speak, into uh, apologetics in general. And then, of course, presuppositional apologetics more specifically, which came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you to play favorites a little bit. Okay. Who's been your favorite interview so far on your show? Who? Uh... Oh, man. And we're going to tell all your other guests what you said. <laughs> yeah. I would have to say that my two favorite ones, and that's not to say some of the other ones were really good. The ones that I'm not going to mention are like right near, you know, they're right near. I would have to say my conversation with Guillaume Bignon when he was uh, critiquing um, three libertarian freewillers, Braxton Hunter, uh, at Trinity Radio, Tim Stratton at Free Thinking Ministries, and Leighton Flowers, um, all friends of mine. We always have interesting back and forth. So I actually appeared on Leighton's show uh, once. If, you, if you've ever seen that on YouTube, it was fun. He's, he's a good guy. Um, I'm sorry? Soteriology 101, right? That's right. That's right. Um, but um, I would have to say my favorite is with Guillaume and with uh, Chris Bolt. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I think we cover Chris Bolt uh, obviously is not as prominent as say like James White or um, Scott Oliphant, but I think we covered a really good amount of precept stuff like um, you know tra- the nature of transcendental arguments and things like that. And for me, at a personal level, I got to ask him questions that I was wondering about. And so uh, one of the cool things about doing these interviews is that um, not only am I promoting the presuppositional method, but I get to talk to, you know, really uh, intelligent people and get some of my questions answered. Or maybe maybe I know the answer to a question, but the way he words it is is kind of a more helpful way of, of wording it. So um, I, I really enjoyed that interview. However, 
my interview with Dr. James Anderson, which I think is we're going to be doing on May 8th or 9th. I'd have to double check. I'm anticipating that that will take the cake because I love Dr. Anderson and he is a pretty sharp guy. So I'm, I'm anticipating that uh, that discussion to be very good. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Those are actually my two favorites that I've watched of you as well. Uh, okay. Yeah, Bignon, uh, when his book first came out, I snatched it up and uh, just huge, just like eye-opening. The way he's so logically rigorous and, and clear. And I had to look up a lot of stuff in logic to try and figure out, you know, some of the more technical yeah. stuff. But uh, yeah, someone who, again, is just so bold and he's funny and he's got the French accent so he gets that. He's very funny. I mean, I, I've spoken to them just on the phone without being like live or anything like that. He's a really funny guy. Yeah. And he just goes out and says, hey, look, I, this is my position and I'm going to refute you guys. <laughs> and he's not like an arrogant jerk. It's funny and he makes a little joke. But right. yeah, that, that uh, he's one of my favorite people to listen to. Everyone always has to call him a French uh, Calvinist as well. That's, that's right. That's right. There's just something. There's just an air of authenticity to it because John Calvin was French. So it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, John Calvin. Uh, he kind of lived back in the day, so we don't really know what he sounds like. But I suppose if he was here today, he'd sound something like you know. Yeah. Yeah. You, know you kind of feel more reformed when talking to a, a Calvinist with a French accent. So that's yeah, awesome. very true. Yeah. Well, who would be your dream interview? Um. Wow. Uh, well, I did interview. Kevin Harris of Reasonable Faith, who is Dr. William Lane Craig's interviewer, and he uh, expressed to me that um, he would tell Dr. Craig about me and see if we could set up an interview. So although uh, Dr. Craig is not a presuppositionalist, he has exercised a great amount of influence over my thinking. I remember reading through his entire Reasonable Faith while doing bathroom duty as a permanent substitute teacher uh, in one of the public schools down here where I live. Um, and so I, I've listened to all of his debates. Um, and if you, if you appreciate my demeanor as a gentleman, I appreciate that because I purposely try to do that. But I had learned that primarily from watching Dr. Craig. Mm. I definitely didn't learn that from my reform brothers. I learned the other stuff from my reform brothers. Uh, but the, the, this idea of just trying to be a gentleman and trying to be professional um, when I try to do that intentionally, I always have Dr. Craig in the back of, of my mind. Um, he is a gentleman both to his opponents that are unbelievers and opponents that are believers, and I greatly respect him for that. So a dream interview would be with Dr. Craig, and hopefully that's something that will be a reality as I am touching base with uh, you know his ministry now. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We're, we're kind of – so you started more in William and Craig, right? Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. yeah. I, got, I got to meet Dr. Craig um, – Back in like 2012, something like that, I was actually taking a, an undergrad philosophy course to make up for a deficiency so I could get my, my master's in philosophy. And um, we, I, we got to go up to Milwaukee. We live in Chicago. And we got, I, I got to go up to Milwaukee and uh, meet up with him with some of the other undergrad students. And my big claim to fame with Dr. Craig is we were meeting at this, uh, this place where we were all having pizza. And it was supposed to be unlimited pizza. So Dr. Craig comes in and, you know, we're all talking. I'm a little starstruck and I, I made this brilliant joke about how, you know, even though we understand this is unlimited pizza, this isn't an actual infinite of pizza because that would be impossible. Right. And I actually got him to crack a smile because, you know, he talks about that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was my big claim to fame with Dr. Craig. I like to think that he still holds that moment to be just as precious. Sure he does. <laughs> Even though I've abandoned uh, his classicalist yeah. ways, yeah. Uh, I will always have that special moment. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, in my opinion, though, um, 
in my opinion, I do consider him uh, the a brilliant mind of our time and one of one of the most influential uh, apologists living today, philosophers living today. And um, you know, I greatly respect him for that. Even if there's a lot that I disagree with, um, there's a lot that I can learn from him. So I continue to do so, and that would be a dream uh, dream interview. Yeah, hopefully it will happen. Yeah, we've we've. Uh... We've come full circle on them, um, you know, because we started getting into Psy, started to get us some, some of that kind of stuff, and you you hear it come out, the, the things that the Psy talks about, the things presuppers, uh, presuppers, you know, just kind of just get all rashy with. Um, mm -hmm. And you hear it in Craig, and he goes, you know, uh, is there, uh, are you, are you, uh, are you certain that God exists? Yeah, yeah, exactly. God exists. Yeah. No, right? And so you go, oh, man, okay, terrible. And then you start reading more of his stuff, and you're like, oh, you know, I actually appreciate that. Oh, that's really good. Or like you said, with with him being a gentleman, uh, and, and also like he's another guy who is really personable, who can make funny jokes, who can make the crowd laugh, and yeah. and show that, that Christianity is reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you might not make as strong the claims as we'd like. I also have appreciated since getting into philosophy that a lot of the claims that we make on the popular level are really hard to support at the academic level. Mm -hmm. and not that that we shouldn't, but it's going to take a lot more work to, to demonstrate some of the kind of claims that we're making. Sure. So just appreciating him in in a different in a different light as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you think, um, Eli? As we as we sort of begin to wind this down, what what would you say are some of the biggest threats to Christian apologetics, or some of the biggest issues that? Christian apologists need to be aware of and need to be ready to address today? I, I think that we need to continually bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I think one of the dangers of apologetics is that we can become so enamored with different philosophical thinkers and philosophical systems mm -hmm. that we allow unbiblical concepts to seep into our thinking. Um, and in those cases, what do we do? We set the scripture aside. We set the authority of scripture over every area of our life. And, and we set that aside within the way that we think and the way that we reason. And so I, I think that is a danger um, that we need to be very careful of, that we need to be very, uh, very conscious of the fact that we are bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I think one danger uh, for apologetics is to be so enamored with apologetics that we, um, we fall back on our scripture reading. It's very possible to uh, read more books about the Bible than to read the Bible itself. And I think this is one of the, the great pitfalls of doing apologetics is that we, uh, under the guise of wanting to honor Christ and say, you know, Jesus is number one and we're going to argue for the truth of Christianity and the Bible is so important in our lives, uh, but we're not actually, we're, we're reading other books more in depth and with more consistency than we do uh, with the Bible. And I think that's a, that's a danger. If we want to be effective Christian apologists and we need to be holistic in our approach. A good Christian apologist is not one who is only good at presenting arguments and answering objections. A good Christian apologist is also one who is living godly when he's not debating. Because when you're not debating, the world is still watching, and they see how you live your life, and you hurt the witness of Christ when you're inconsistent in that sphere of life, but then you're all gung-ho, you know, destroying atheists in that other sphere, right? And this is this waffle kind of thinking. I have my life over here and my apologetics over here. You can't be a presuppositionalist and be, the, and be that way because all the spheres are seeping into one another. We have an entire system in which how we live in our personal lives needs to be consistent with regards to how we engage the unbeliever. That's why 
it's very it's very important to understand that it is quite possible to defend the faith um, unbiblically. You know, say that you're say you're using presuppositional apologetics and you're using it correctly, but then you're being a jerk. Well, then, well, then now now you're negating the part of First Peter three fifteen that we've quoted ad, ad nauseum in apologetic literature. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you, yet doing so with gentleness and respect. You know, if we're always ready to give an answer, but we're not being gentle, we're not being respectful, we're being dirtbags, really, that's not really a biblical apologetic, because the biblical apologetic includes those other aspects, our demeanor, the way we carry ourselves, the way we interact with people. And before anyone says anything who might be watching, oh, well, Jesus flipped over the tables. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop using that passage as an excuse to be a jerk. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I get it. I get it. There's a time. There's a time to be firm. I'm not saying that we need to be willy-nilly and, and kind of soft, but we should know the difference yeah. between the, the need to be strong and just being flat out disrespectful to the people that we're talking with. And we can't hide behind our Calvinism either, where people say, well, it's up to God who changes the heart, so I'm just going to be, I'm just going to tell them the truth. Like, listen, you can tell the truth in a way that doesn't require you to be a dirtbag. Right. And that's what we need to try to do, to be consistent with, uh, you know, the actions of our hands and the words of our mouth need to be consistent with our profession of faith. Yeah. That's a nice little trite perspectival summary at the end there, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I didn't do that on purpose. Look at that. <laughs> once, it, once it's in there, though. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so I was going to ask, uh, you know, some next steps for, for Christian apologists. I think I'm, I'm tempted not to because you gave such a great summary there of the character. And mm -hmm. I think that's really, really important. Um, just having scripture in your head, actually reading it, actually loving the Lord, actually wanting to win souls is kind of a really big deal. You know, in apologetics, not just sometimes, like you said, it is. Uh, you know, shutting the mouths or just destroying arguments, lofty opinions, raising against the knowledge of God. But at the end of the day, man, we want to win souls. And we do affirm that God has ordained the ends, but he also ordains the means of us sharing it like Christ, you know, with general mm -hmm. respect. And I guess here and there, making a whip uh, um, and turning them from tables. Mm -hmm. I haven't come... Uh, but by, the, by the way, I have no problem with those verses, tearing down the strong... Like, I think that as Christian apologists, especially as presuppositionalists, you have the strength of our argumentation within the presuppositional framework, we should destroy and disintegrate and pound into a fine powder to be blown over the the waves of the ocean. I think we should be able to do that with apologetics. I'm not I'm not trying to say that we need to be soft in our argumentation. Course, yeah. We destroy strongholds. Yeah. So destroy. That's right. Show the world the folly of unbelieving thought. I think we should do that. But the way we do it needs to be considered as well. But yeah, those destroying arguments parts a huge part of it, and I think it's very important. I don't want to cast that aside. Yeah. So, so for um, you, you've been a really good. Uh, so you've been a practitioner, right? And you're doing debates. You're also um, a popularizer, bringing the academy out and asking them really good questions from your own personal experience as well. Uh, how about the the popular level apologist, uh, the the other popularizers, and the uh, the guys who are going to go back to their youth group and talk mm -hmm. to uh, kids uh, and, and teach them apologetics, what are some some maybe first steps or next steps from this interview or from your work? How do they get involved doing uh, apologetics t today, tomorrow? Yeah. Well, I think that the leaders in their church need to be trained. And one of the reasons why I want to do these videos and to get myself out there, because I wouldn't imagine that these people that I'm interviewing are going to come to their churches. Um, I'm also a public speaker, and so I'm hoping to get 
uh, when all this COVID-19 stuff, of course, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, is over, I, I'm hoping to be invited to churches and to help instruct people and, and be kind of that way of saying like, here, this is how it's done. Let's talk about it. Let's go through some questions and do some workshops and things like that. Um, I'm hoping to be able to do things like that. And yeah. so um, not only providing the, um, you know, the things through social media, but also saying, hey, you know what? I can see him come in our church and talking to our young people. Like, I'd love to do something like that and, uh, and promote it uh, in a way where we're now equipping people uh, right there where they are. Yeah. Um, so that's at least that's my goal in, in terms of what I'm doing. I have the, you know, YouTube and the Facebook, but also I try and put myself out there as, um, you know, being a speaker or doing workshops and things like that. I spoke at a Texas A&M International University with a bridge ministry where I shared the stage with Eric Hernandez, who is a, a really good uh, um, Christian apologist, Matt Slick. Um, and uh, we did a conference on apologetics there. And so I love to go out to places and to just share and teach and answer questions the best that I can and really um, equip people at that personal level and then just get them excited and take it back to their churches. Yeah. Well, you're, you're on the right podcast. Um, I just double-checked. Two-thirds of our audience is between uh, 18 and uh, 27. So mm. you know, that, that the next generation of guys and gals coming up through the ranks of the church who want to think deeply about their faith and what they believe and how to articulate it and defend right. it, um, you know, some, some of them are listening to this show. And so yeah. um, if you're listening, if you're watching, definitely check out Eli's work. Uh, we strongly recommend it. Um, you, you heard some of his favorite episodes. Check them out. I was listening to his interview with Dr. James White last night and uh, just just really good. I mean, it, it felt like listening in a, on a conversation between two old friends. I mean, it's, it was really a, a congenial discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, so I highly recommend Revealed Apologetics, Eli Ayala, and uh, the work that he's doing. That was good. That was good. You pronounced my name really well. Very good. <laughs> Man, I've been practicing in front of the mirror. Uh, so, um, Eli, as we begin to bring things to a close here, uh, and yeah, I realize I already said that, but a uh, former preacher here, I'm going to probably say that two or three more times before we, before we actually wrap up. Um, how, how can folks right now pause this video and go get connected with what you're doing? Where can they find you? Please give us the, the specific place where they can find you to best engage with your work. Yeah, well, I'd really appreciate if they uh, just search Revealed Apologetics on YouTube and subscribe um, and, you know, put the little notification things on. I've got a, a lot of things in close proximity coming up. Um, I got, uh, as I mentioned before, I have, um, uh, who's next? I think I have Dr. Michael Kruger uh, talk about presuppositional apologetics applied to the development of the canon, you know, the, the development of the, the books of the New Testament, how they were um, established. I have Doug Wilson to, uh, coming on, and we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, presuppositionalism within the context of debate. What's the best way to kind of do that within that context? I have Jeff Durbin coming on to, to see how uh, presuppositional apologetics can be applied to other religious perspectives. I think that's an area of presupp that's underdeveloped and not a lot of people are talking about. And then I have uh, James Anderson, as I mentioned before. And uh, so, yeah, subscribe. And, and these things are coming, you know, all this month. And into the next month, and uh, 
you know, uh, there's a lot of good things going on here. So, and in, in between those interviews, I do a little uh, teachings here and there on just the ins and outs of different aspects of presuppositional apologetics. So, I would um, greatly appreciate if folks uh, subscribe and on on iTunes as well. So, if you're not a YouTube guy, look up Revealed Apologetics on iTunes. And sometimes I rip the audio of my YouTube videos and make them podcasts. So um, you can, um, uh, you know, subscribe to those. Lastly, if you have a specific question about apologetics just in general, uh, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. If I don't uh, respond back through message, sometimes I take people's questions and I just incorporate them in a podcast episode. So you might get your question answered um, on an episode. Uh, so those are the different ways you can reach out to me if you need a speaker um, even if it's like a private Zoom thing, you want to kind of, you know, get something going on where you have a couple of people just uh, go through like an apologetics class or something like that, let me know. I'm open to, to all sorts of things. Love it. Awesome. Well, um, Eli, thank you so much. Um, if, you're, if you're listening to this on the Think Podcast right now, I encourage you, pause this, go subscribe to Reveal the Apologetics right now and leave him a an honest five-star rating and review. Um, just like I always ask you to do for the Think Podcast. Unless, unless you hate it. Imagine you listen to an episode and it's like, this show stinks. No, no, no. no it's important to rate it first. It's just like how Congress passes the bill. Rate it first. That's right. You got to pass out. it yeah. in order to find out what's in it. Okay, so, okay. Uh, go, <laughs> go, leave the, um, go leave the review. Of course, connect with us um, through the Think Institute and the work we're doing simply by going to thethink.institute. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, and Instagram at the Think Institute. On Twitter, we are at ThinkInst. Parker, how can people follow your work? Yeah, it's Parker. That's great. So yeah, yeah, that's, uh, great. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, ParkerSetAcase.com. Super easy for me. Not all uh, convoluted like someone I know. But yeah, very good. Very good. Um, so the important thing here is uh, get out there and get equipped to articulate, share, and defend the Christian message. It is all about making disciples. It's all about introducing the gospel to those who don't currently believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, there is no calling that is greater on our life than to connect sinners with their one and only Savior. It's, mm -hmm. it's how we've been redeemed. It's how we've been regenerated. The three of us, I know I, I can speak for these gentlemen as well, we are not uh, naturally saints. We have been forgiven. We have been saved. We have been washed and, and justified and sanctified uh, and glorified by Jesus Christ. And and that's something we want to commend to everyone and to actually urgently appeal with everyone. So uh, Eli and Revealed Apologetics are creating resources for you to do just that. Uh, Parker's doing that. I'm doing that with the Think Institute. That's what we try to do with Sons of Thunder. And um, uh, Eli, any, any parting words that you want to leave with our audience? Uh, not really. Just thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. And um, uh, just kind of a, a little encouragement for people who are getting into apologetics it's okay uh, if you don't understand all the ins and outs of, of argumentation and things like that um you know uh, just a couple of stones in the hands of david took out the giant so all you need is enough apologetics to be a little dangerous <laughs> so, uh so you know and matt my friend matt slick told me that uh one way to practice doing this stuff is just trust and go that's the the two the two step you trust god and you go, you do your due diligence, you know, you read, you study, you pray, uh, but just trust and go and uh, know that God has the results all figured out. Good. Amen. Good. All right. All right. Until next time. Now, at the end here, just so you know, Eli, we always try to come up with a really good 
like tagline and we haven't come up with one we've been doing this for months and months we have no good tagline so yeah. at the end we just we say i hope it and then we try to just bumble through we just bumble and stumble our way through yeah. so you're about to witness um maybe this go ahead you'll, you'll take it this time right, so there's no judgment here yeah. so um that that's all we have for you uh until next time i hope it put some stones in your slate oh that's pretty good put some that's stones pretty good. In your <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Eli, have a great day. God bless you, man. God bless.